<laughs> Hello, everybody. We are live. Hi, everybody. It's Ken Stearns. Uh, this is, it's the JAR, I call it the JAR Foundation podcast. I think we're going to be moving it to, to call it uh, Mental Health Today. And it'll be Mental Health Today with Constance Sharf. Sharf? Sharf, yes. Sharf. Just Sharf. Sharf. Okay, so I'm, I'm trying to make it too hard. No, no, um, you had it right. Yeah, I was trying to make it too hard. And so it's really bringing people who are in the mental health space or have some, you know, profound experience uh, through the mental health space where they where they want to share and they've got something, uh, a journey to share or an idea to share or a passion um, about being in the space and what they're trying to do, uh, how they're trying to help people or connect people. And I've met so many wonderful people already, Constance. It's it's like magic. Um, so I'm really looking forward to hearing your story and, and sharing it and letting other people kind of share in it. And I hope we get some, you know, people listening and hope we get some comments. Um, so who are you? How did you get to this chair? What's going on? And that's it. Yeah. So I, uh, out of in university trained in international development i wanted to go around the world in the global south and look at international development projects primarily focused on women and girls okay. um and uh community justice and uh equity and the environment right oh, make the world so, a better place so young and so aspirational right right i lived in india i lived in kenya i lived in el salvador did a research project in el salvador i was only there for a month um and uh you know that's what i thought i wanted to do the problem was that i was an alcoholic and even at that young age, <laughs> I drank two liters or more of hard liquor a day um, oh in 1992. Um, when, or no, 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 no. 1995. 1995. I was drinking uh, uh, that much uh, every day. Good God. And I had had significant childhood trauma. Okay. So when I walked across the stage at graduation... I realized not only was I unemployed because I never thought of college as, you know, a means of getting a job. <laughs> I thought it was a place that where you go to learn. Um, so I realized I was unemployed and I also realized that I was an alcoholic and there was no point in, you know, trying to find a job, climb the corporate ladder because I was going to die. So by the time I was 22 years old, my liver and kidneys <sighs> were giving out. You could see them. And so I lived in Scotland for a little while, came back and did outdoor school. And uh, long story short, my father died very suddenly. And he was the one who had abused me so badly when I was a child. And I thought, I drink as much now that he's dead. I mean, this is like four days after he's gone, right? I was like, hmm, I still drink so much. I thought I drank because I was terrified of him. And in the few days after his passing, I realized I drank because I couldn't stop drinking. And so I got sober. I used a 12-step program because keep in mind back in 1995, that's kind of what was available. Oh, that's, there, it. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. There was 12 steps. Um, you could go to rehab, a 28 or 30-day program. We called it a $30,000 big book because they were all 12-step based. Right. So you went and did 12 steps, you know. So I, I got sober using a 12-step program, but I couldn't stay sober because I had so much trauma. And back in the mid nineties, there was not good trauma treatment. So it took two and a half years for me to get sober. My uh, current sobriety date is uh, June 29th, 1998. I originally started trying to get sober uh, November 11th of 1995. So about two and a half years to yeah. a little bit more. But maybe pretty typical. Absolutely. But I, I, I point that out because, A, I didn't get sober day one and stay sober day one. I was sober most of that two and a half year period. I was, certainly yeah, wasn't okay. drinking, you know, two liters of, of liquor a day at that point. But what really got me was the trauma because I'd stopped drinking for a little while. There was nothing to be done for the trauma symptoms. And of course, at some point you'd have to drink again to tamp them down. Because I had them all. I had flashbacks, body memories, dissociation, hypervigilance, et cetera, and so forth. So I was sort of struck sober, which is an interesting story for another time. But I was struck sober and sober. I was miserable. 
and I'm suicidal half the time and I'm barely getting through the day. And at that point, our veterans started coming back. I'm years sober at this point. Veterans started coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. I lived in Los Angeles at that time. And I went to my regular 12 step meeting was right near the VA. And so those veterans, those veterans would walk over to that meeting on Fridays. And so and I was the court card signer, right there, for, so that they, people, you know, said that they're their, you know, yeah, for their house, right. And I got to meet those veterans, and they weren't staying sober, and they had terrible. Many of them had terrible trauma. Yeah. And I thought, you know, and then one veteran who I really, really liked, he was, oh gosh, probably twenty three, twenty four. Um, he was a Marine married infant child and he killed himself because there the trauma was mm-hmm. too difficult with without the drugs and alcohol most veterans don't use drugs most veterans use alcohol they use what's legal veterans yeah. tend to follow the law yeah um so they so we're mostly dealing with alcohol but he just couldn't do it and i got it i understood i was like yes i know what that's like and I was in grad school at the time and I thought, you know, there has to be something better. I didn't get sober to be miserable. These folks are not staying sober. So what can we do? So again, I was looking at international development and, you know, I'd gone to Namibia and all places and all this to, to do this development work. And I was like, no. And I switched everything that I was doing in grad school. And I started looking at complementary and indigenous methods of treating trauma and that's or mental health in general but specifically trauma is my interest and looking really at the intersection of addiction and trauma and that's what i started that's what i started doing and so what i did is you know the american healthcare system is a for-profit system and so what what you know healthcare providers on the whole, not individual doctors, but the big, you know, healthcare Mm -hmm. systems, what they want to do is they want to manage your symptoms as a chronic illness. It's the best way to keep profits coming in, right? If you have to go to the doctor four times a year, right? And they prescribe you medications and you can take this medication, but not that medication and blah, blah, blah. You know, I wanted to switch one of a medication that I have and, you know, they're giving me all sorts of, you know, hullabaloo about it. It's like, well, the medication you want me to take, I've been on for three years and it doesn't work. So maybe it's time to try the medication (laughs) that all my friends are taking and it effing works, right? So, hmm, but, you know, it's a for-profit system. There is no impetus in our system for you to get healed. Agreed. So what I look at are those complementary, in in medical parlance, it's called CAM, complementary and alternative medicine, CAM medicine. Okay. So I look at these therapeutics. They are not always given by doctors. Yep. That have few to no side effects. So I don't look at medications at all because that it's a whole different kind of, of research. Yes. So for example, my last book that came out in uh, 2021, I'm a, basically I'm an author. I love, I love writing. I, I, I was going to say, I, I did notice the one thing, man, you are prolific. Yeah. These are not all mine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but by the time you pass, you may feel alive. Right. Right. So, so I, uh, the last book I wrote, Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation. I looked at this organization, Rock to Recovery, which has musicians, rock stars, really, in recovery themselves from addiction, um, who go into treatment facilities and write and record songs with people. What my job was, in addition to writing the book, was to look at the research behind music and mental health. Now, let me give you an example, you know, from the research. If you are having a bad day and you get in your car and you're stuck in L.A. traffic like I often was and you sing, do your own carpool karaoke like you don't care who's listening and a song you like, right, comes on the radio and you sing along to it, what happens? Oh, my mood goes up. My right, you adre- feel better. My, my adrenaline, I mean, my um, the endorphins release. Right, so it's, it's oxytocin, serotonin, and dopamine. I'm, that gum- I'm, 
get dumped in your brain. So, so you can do this on a regular day. So if you're just a regular human being with what we would call average neurochemistry, your brain is producing the chemicals it's supposed to do do. produce in the way it's supposed to, and you sing or hum, and it doesn't matter if you're good. Your brain doesn't know if you're good. It only knows that you do it. So you could be off key, flat, tone deaf. Nobody cares. Your brain does not care. So you and I, if we have normal brains, average brains, are going to go from here to here. Yeah. Now imagine that you have severe trauma, that you have addiction, and your brain is not producing those chemicals in the average way. You're going to go from the basement to here. You're going to get high. You're going to feel so good. You are, your whole brain is going to light up. So it gets you out of those thoughts of, I need to use, I need to use, I need to use, I need to use. Because that's the boring part of addiction. You're always focused on getting the next, right? As soon as you come down enough to not be, you know, high out of your skull, it's where am I getting? Where am I getting? Right? So it takes you out of that feedback loop. And it makes you feel so good that what we found is you're going to engage in programming. Afterwards, we're going to get at information. So you're writing your own song. You're going to get at information that maybe you can't get to in talk therapy. So when I started talk therapy at a year sober and had a wonderful therapist for 10 years, 10 years, every, every week, sometimes more. The first two years, I could not say the word incest. I literally... uh, it wouldn't come out. I'd write it down. Hand, what I wanted to say before I went to the session, hand her a little note and I'd be so dissociated. I wouldn't come back to myself for a day. The next day I'd be like, oh, I wonder what I said to my therapist. Wow. Music circumvents that. So what's the, what are the side effects then? What could happen? You don't participate. So you don't get the effect. You're like, you know, to hell with right. you. It's too goofy or dorky or <laughs> I don't sing well. You judge yourself, whatever. Um, you don't finish the song. You write about something, uh, Rock to Recovery would very often uh, work with uh, adolescents, you know, and sometimes I'd write a song about how the pizza sucked at lunch. Okay. Like, it doesn't always have to be like doom and gloom, but this, so there's no side effects really, but the positives are huge. That's what I look at. And I try all of these things on myself. Now, not everything works for everyone. That's fine. No big deal. But I want to know as a, you know, not only as a practitioner, but also as someone with trauma, what works and what doesn't. And so I found things that work. Now, one of the things in my first book, Ending Addiction for Good, we talked about is none of these therapeutics on their own have a very good outcome. So if you just Uh, sing, right, why are there so many rock stars who OD, right? If you just sing, If you just meditate, if you just journal, right, if you just do yoga, if you just do acupuncture, none of them have a very good impact on recovery. But, and we don't know what the mechanism for this is, if you do them together, they have a synergistic effect and have an outcome that's more than the sum of their parts. Makes sense somehow. Right. Right. Somehow intuitively, you're like, that makes a lot of sense. Right. So part of what we think is happening, and again, this is not proven. This is at the cutting edge of science. Part of what we think is happening is that addiction in particular trauma too. So addiction is basically being stuck in a rut of, I need to use, I need to use, I need to use. You need to use, you use, then you need to use again. Right. How are you going to get the money? How are you going to get the drugs? How are you going to get over to the place? Like it's all about how to. So it's a continual feedback loop. In neuroscience, we say what fires together, wires together. So if you keep doing or thinking about the same thing over and over, it makes that neurological pattern stronger. Yeah, you get really good at it. So that's where obsession comes from, right? Is these are these neurological patterns, right? I think about using uh, all the time. So then I'm going to continue to think about using all the time. The more I do that, the harder it is to break. Then you have drugs like uh, uh, fentanyl that really kind of knot the brain up into that pattern too. I mean, so it makes it, it makes it more difficult. Trauma, essentially, I mean, this is not the, this is not the, you know, American Psychological okay. Association definitions. Trauma is essentially being stuck in the past 
And so I create a feedback loop about the past. And in my case, I'm terrified. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's he, coming. my father, is dead. I don't know, 28 years now or something. He's not coming. He's not coming. But who that he in my mind? Yeah. He is coming. He's there. And well, he's in the room probably. He's almost. in the room. Well, I could yeah. used to be able to. It doesn't happen anymore. I used to feel him breathing on my neck. Fuck. And I'm and terrified. A physical, a physical reaction to an imaginary it's called body. It's called body memories. I mean, it's a real, it's a, it's a real memory, though. It's a yeah. real memory because I also have uh, trauma-based amnesia. I don't remember hardly anything. A few very vague memories from the three years in which my father abused me the most. You, you I remember have... the first instance of the abuse, and then my memory is almost gone until he had a girlfriend girlfriend I use loosely my mother had left he had a girlfriend who was a prostitute and she used to come over in the morning my mom had gone with my brother to live with her mom I was still at, at my dad's house and she saw me on like a Tuesday I was I was 10 years old and she saw me on like a Tuesday morning before school washing my sheets now not only is she an adult woman but she's also a prostitute and she's like mm, kids don't wash their sheets on a Tuesday morning before school right she looked me in the eye this is uh 82 she looks me in the eye and she said he will never touch you again I do not know what happened when she walked into the house because I went to school but he never touched me again that's where my memory picks up so my savior is a prostitute who probably didn't make it through the AIDS epidemic. What a lovely person. Right? And talk about like no power, you know, like in terms of like, you know, sociocultural power. But she's like, he's not going to touch you again. And he did not. She was true to her word. So, so I, so wow. I have, I have amnesia for most of that period. I mean, like vague things. You have you know, to, I remember. You, you have to. Your brain right? would block. You have to block. Of course, like that of course. Out. And I don't. I don't need to try to chase those memories. I have. <laughs> no. You know, there's no need for it. So, but I'm trapped in the past. But my yeah, body. Yeah. The point is, my body remembers. You know, the book Vanderkolk's "The Body Keeps the Score." You know, is sort of iconic in the trauma literature, and that it, and it says, well, you know, your brain might not remember, but your body knows. And so I, I would feel this whenever I get into some sort of situation, I feel this, you know, him breathing on my neck and be absolutely frozen. The other part of that is I was groomed. And so people who are predators in the same way that my father was pick me out and I would have predators approach me, you know, I was at I was at the mall once. I was like, oh, maybe like 24, 25. I was at the mall in Northridge, California, and I was sitting in a table. So you know the tables in the and the um or is in a booth and the table and the and the chair are connected, right? You can't yeah. just like flip the ta the chair of uh, the table over, right? Right. So I'm eating. I'm a big lady. I was much bigger then. I was over three about 320, 325 pounds. And this man walks up while I'm having my lunch looks at my chest, looks me in the eye, looks at my chest, looks me in the, I mean, right here. And he's like, I'd love to stick my, in that, like staring at my chest. And I was just like, that does not happen to my girlfriends. You're looking around the room going, what? But it doesn't happen to my girlfriends. Yeah. Yeah. Because why? Because you've got. Because I've been groomed and I don't see them coming. So that would happen to me once or twice a year. Well, every time that happened, uh, I ate everything I could because I heard my father once say, I don't like to have sex with fat women. Oh, well, that's great information. That's 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 good self-preservation data. Right? Great information. So I get to I get to junior high and they, they have cupcakes to buy it snack and i'm like yes please right so i would just eat yeah yeah and I'm... i thought i thought that if i became such an immovable mound of flesh that no one would be interested that's not true that's not true at all heavy women get assaulted just the way same way skinny women get assaulted there's no that doesn't make any difference that's why i work with personally in my doctoral work, I work with narrative. 
I'm a writer. I like stories. Um, I don't deal with capital T truths. I don't know like the nature of the universe or how Big Bang. And I, I don't know. Is there a guy? I don't have no idea. But I deal with what I call little T truths. Is it true enough? Is oh, it true I, enough? Yes, yeah. And so I can pivot. I can just pivot. So one day I was saying to a friend of mine, I was like, absolutely terrified. This lovely man who I knew, uh, we both were working with the same group of veterans. And uh, we were at a hotel in uh, uh, National Harbor in, in Maryland, right near Washington, yeah. D.C., just outside okay. of Washington, D.C. We were at a hotel and we're, I was standing in front of the elevator to go up to my room. And this man, who I've worked with for like a year, I, I know who he is, very lovely. We're standing in the lobby with at least 40 to 60 other people. We are not alone. He says, oh, are you going to the uh, Thanksgiving dinner? It was a week before Thanksgiving. Are you going to the Thanksgiving dinner tonight? And I said, no, I'm going to have I'm going to have dinner with uh, some friends of mine that I was there working with. He said, OK. And I got into the, the uh, elevator and I went to my room. He triggered me. Because it felt like he was asking me on a date, which he was not. Let's be clear. I called. A, I went into my room. I barricaded the door with a chair. I locked myself in. I'm absolutely terrified. I can't breathe. I called a friend of mine who was back in California and I said, such and so just, you know, talk to me. He said, oh, well, did he try to, and he knows who he is. He said, did he try to get into the elevator? No. Did he follow you to your room? No. Yeah. Has he tried to do anything call, at all call, call in any or... way? <laughs> yeah. Right, right? Because all he did was say, hey, are you going to the big event that like, I don't know, <laughs> that everybody's going 400 to. <laughs> people are going to go to tonight? And I said, no, I'm going to go out with some friends. And he was like, great, you know, see you tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing, nothing inappropriate. But I was triggered. But you, for you, it was, yeah. Right. And so I'm like, I must eat all the things. And, and he said, you know, it's not, it's not true. He's not going to hurt. That guy's not going to hurt you. And being heavier is not going to do anything. And for some reason that day it landed. When he's like, that's not true. I was like, that's not true. And I immediately, without changing my diet or anything, exercising more, whatever, I lost 70 pounds and 70, 75 pounds. And I've kept it off for, I don't know, four years now. Just from the one from the one phone call, at least you reached. I well, mean, it what, was what from, an important thing reaching from, out. It was from that little T truth. Yeah, yeah. It's not true. Yeah. First of all, my my father slept with whoever he could sleep with. He didn't care if they were fat or skinny or whatever. I don't think my father actually was a pedophile. I think I was just available. Yeah. Because I saw the other women that he, you know, went out with, and they were mostly women he paid, and uh, they were, you know women and all sorts of sizes, you know, who was available mm, at two said. in the afternoon on a, on a Thursday, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's what he was interested in. The other thing that I learned from this is I started using a program of somatics. Somatics are body-based therapeutics because one thing mm. the trauma survivors don't know how to do is we're not in our bodies. I'm usually, my consciousness is usually somewhere out here behind my eyes and up and out a little bit. Like I'm not anywhere. Sometimes I'll see you from like way far away behind my, you know, my head back here. It's like you're way down a tunnel. I'm not normally here until the last few years. I started doing a somatic program and there are other very good somatic programs, okay. but I started doing something called radical aliveness. And what they attempt to do is get you into your body. See, here was the problem with, with talk therapy. It didn't do anything for me. Because I can tell you the whatever story and have absolutely no emotional attachment and be so dissociated that I won't even know what I've said to you for two days. Uh, yeah, and I don't see you as that talking person. No. No, no. I yeah. had to learn yeah. that it was safe to be in my body. So, yeah. you know, like I said, I'd have these body memories where this, you know, I feel my father breathing on my, well, t no. Pfft. Why are you going to inhabit your body if that's what you feel? You know? And that Ooh. was sort of, you know, I, I share that one because that was one of the more mild. There were some that were much more horrific. 
right? So why would you be, why would you want to be present for that? What I learned through radical aliveness was that it's actually, it's actually safe to inhabit this space. What does that feel like now? I mean, you're only coming into your own body in these last few years. Yeah. It's start, it's starting to feel normal. Um, I think the most, the most profound experience is being present emotionally. Like I'm not seeing you from up here or back behind, like I'm present with you right now. Yeah, I feel that. I can connect to people in a way I never could before. It's like hard, I have these yeah. I have these godchildren in Australia whom I love. I adore my godchildren. But until the last few years, if they were in the room with me, I didn't feel it. The minute they left, I'm oh, they're gone. But when they were here, shut down. Shut down. It's also, it is a trip to be able to feel my body. So when I drank, now I'll be 25 years sober at the end of June, right? But when I drank, I would feel my finger. And when it felt like wood, that's what I was going for. I wanted oblivion. I wanted to feel nothing, physically, emotionally, nothing. Now I'm a good alcoholic, so I'm going to keep drinking till I fall off the bar stool and pass out. But I wanted to feel that nothing. Now, when you're sober, that sucks that you to not be able to feel or connect in your body or anything Absolutely. like that. Absolutely, yeah, very disassociative. Learned, yeah, but I learned through radical lives. I'm like, wow. So, like right now, where I am, it's a little bit cold, and so my feet tend to be cold. But I have these really nice slippers on, and I can like I. So all of those, you know, it's not just about sex or like the great food or, you know, a hug or whatever. It's not, those are all nice. It's, that's all great. But those little things, like I just got these flannel, I don't know, six months ago, I got these flannel pajama bottoms that I just love and uh-huh. like freshly shaved legs in the warm pajama bottoms when you get into bed or like first thing in the morning when you're like, Ooh, I have some time and I'm just going to snuggle under the covers with my dog. Like, mm. yes. Like and you have the, all those feelings, like the, the small little, it's new to you. It's becoming normalized. That's it's, so wild. It's becoming normalized because of radical aliveness. And they taught me little by little by little, but I remember, you know, one you know they're they're like can you just dance or move i was like no no and get away from me and don't touch me and all the you know all the things and you know now i'm not a big dancer but i'm like yeah i i I, you know i can be here you know i have uh had to give away all my cashmere sweaters because i lost so much weight but I treated myself and I bought a new cashmere because why? Because cashmere is awesome next to your skin. You know, like it is fantastic. And so I get to have those experiences now. Oh, I think I've lost you. Keep talking. Yeah. Oh, there you are. What is it like? To, and, and I can see my, I, I can't quite figure it out. I've, something's happened to my Wi-Fi today. Um, what's it like to write disassociated? Because that's like, I mean, for me. No, you can't. Yeah. If I, you're going to be, if you're, see, this is, this, this is probably why I'm a writer. I'm an artist. All I want is to do my work. Yes. Right. I have jobs, whatever I write. That's what I do. You cannot write dissociated. Yeah. So for example, when I first got sober, I was put on antidepressants Oh. and I stopped taking them because while they put a floor, right. I wasn't, I couldn't feel anything. No. So the, the, and it, you know, the artist, the writer, the, the dancer, the, you know, whatever form, it doesn't make any difference. I have to 
be able to feel. And I think that's why I've been so forceful in my pursuit. So, Um. you know, adamant in my pursuit of um, what this looks like, uh, what healing looks like. I love that I can, I can pay it forward. I love that I can pass it on. That is great. um, um, Greatly important to me. But I also, I mean, you know, we, in the academy, you know, there's research is mostly me search, right? There's usually some sort of selfish, you know, reason for doing something. And uh, I have that selfish, I'm like, I want to get better. I want to help other people too, but I want to know it works because it worked in my life. Yeah. I like that way you said that in the beginning, where you kind of came to that conclusion that testing it and develop it. You know, and there are things that didn't work for me, like EMDR, it didn't really work for me, but I also saw it work for other people. And again, what does it do? You you kind of wiggle your eyes around with some lights, you know, or tapping, right, which works on the principles of acupuncture. I mean, okay, like, there's no You needed more than tapping. No, I I definitely, well, no, I needed the full-on acupuncture, and boy, did that help. But the other thing that we learned, the other thing that we learned is that the opposite of of addiction is not sobriety. The the healing for addiction is actually uh, connection. It's love. It's love, right? So if you have if you have a rat, this so all this ideas they all come from the rat studies. If you have a rat in a cage and you give them cocaine water, or heroin water, or whatever, they drink the heroin water, the cocaine water, the drug water until they die. But if you put a rat in a rat heaven, right, in a rat playground where there's other rats and things to do and whatever, hardly any of the rats, they'll they'll taste the, the cocaine water, heroin water, whatever, and then they don't do anything with it. Why? Because it's a rat paradise and they don't need to. Oh, I never knew so this So part of the learning not to numb my body and to be present in my body gave me the I mean, opportunity to be an actual connection. Yeah. Right. And so now I can say to, you know, such and so, hey, I, you know, not having a good day. This is happening. Right. So interesting. So that's where that's where the research really is, you know, and I think the difficulty for someone like me is that this kind of research isn't valued in the United States. So there's no money to to do it. The other part is that if you go and speak with people from indigenous communities, tribal communities, marginalized communities, and so forth, they have this in spades, but it's not valued because what's valued is the selfish mine I'm going to get, right? Earning money, that kind of focus. So I was really, I was at a party very I think it was like the October 1st, end of September in Australia. And there's a new um, LGBTQ center in St. Kilda in Melbourne. Okay. And I was at this big party there and they have these beautiful murals of, you know, LGBTQ people doing what they do. Right. Whatever. And one of them was, I don't know if they were, it looked like they may have been getting into drag or just, you know, getting ready for a party. I have no idea. But I wa- I looked at this mural for a long time at the party, and what struck me is how that community, maybe more than most others, really values you being you. Yes. You know, oh, and there was sure. there was a, sure. a, a person there with a full beard and a caftan and fluttering around and and taking pictures. They were there as a photographer. And then there was, you know, a a woman there with the quintessential, like very butch feathered sort of, you know, hair with all denim and cowboy boots and the whole, and was like, Hey, you know, to me, to my friend and I like, Hey, are you, are you, you, you ladies coming to the, you know, concert? And I was, I, I was leaving the next morning. So we were not, but I was like, no, but you know, and there's like, all right, do your thing. And I was like, there is something that we, whatever dominant culture you're talking about, whether it's U- USA yeah. or China or whatever, that we can learn is that, huh, when people get to be themselves in the freest expression of who they are and don't have to fit some role that we've assigned to them, their mental health is better. 
just so so trans individuals have one of the highest addiction rates, one of the highest suicide rates, all of the they have on the whole yeah. difficulties with mental health. Why? Because they're mentally ill? No, because they're so trod upon and and mm. by and bullied and dismissed and mistreated by society. Yeah. From a whole, from their their families of origin, their workplace, you know, he, here in the United States, we've got all sorts of lo- laws that we're protecting them being rolled back, all the things. So how do you cope with that? You cope with that by taking drugs and making not feel things. Yeah. You take you cope with that by you know ending. Or or yeah, and the drugs will end up leading to mental health issues anyway. Well, so they can, up- they can. I think now one of the reasons that I survived is that um, back when I was using, so back when I'm like, I started using when I was 11. So when I was 11 or 14 or 15 or whatever in rural Oregon, Jesus, it was very hard to get your hands on anything. There was no, there were no, you could get uh, alcohol with some work. Sometimes you could get marijuana, which was not nearly as strong as what's now, you know, all the, you know, grow, no, yeah, it was like not, you know, not enough to get you, no, not you to I make mean, your finger feel like wood. No, no, it's no, not going to get you there. I, I've never been. A, I couldn't. I've never learned to inhale properly. That's why when Bill Clinton said, "Well, I didn't inhale," I was like, "Why is everybody laughing? I can't inhale either." <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there was that. Um, but uh, and that was it. Occasionally, meth. Occasionally. Now. In rural areas, there is so much opioid and specifically yeah. fentanyl, people just die. Just the, the first time you use, die. And so that's the only reason I'm alive, that I'm not a statistic, is because it just the things that kill you. So I think now, and and that just, you know, we had over 100,000 overdoses. That I- That's not, that's not alcohol really that's just overdoses most of them from fentanyl and now that's become you know normal and it's not even covered in anything anymore you know and people say well send them to the spoxone clinic and send them to the methadone clinic and see what happens and you know and i'm like that there is real freedom available there is real freedom but you have to have long-term treatment you have to have we have known for more than 40 years almost 50 years now that to really get someone sober, it takes a year. I, I was going to say, how long does it take? A couple yeah, it takes years, a, it almost. takes a year. It takes a year of supportive care, not a year in residential, but we know it's it's uh, usually ninety to one hundred twenty days in residential. Now you're lucky to get a week. the The insurance what? companies are required to give you a detox, but you're not getting twenty eight days. Your insurance company is going to kick you out, and they're going to put you in. Uh, a lower level of care, step down level of care, which is usually outpatient, right? And some sort of sober living. And how do you fail? How do you fail? You fail by relapsing and then you die because what's the most likely time to die is after you've been detoxed, right? When your body is no longer used to using whatever level you were using, but your brain is still used to that level. And boy, that's a real quick way to get you off of the insurance company's, uh, you know, margin sheet. I mean, I hate to be I hate to be that pessimistic about it, but you don't see this. I was giving a, a presentation in Ljubljana, Slovenia, and a colleague of mine invited me to his treatment center to speak to his, you know, uh, mm. uh, patients. And he couldn't they couldn't believe it. Like, well, when how long do people stay? I said, well, you know, if they, you know, have really good insurance, maybe 30 days, but mostly they and they were like, I was like, how long do you stay? And they're like, this woman, they most of them spoke beautiful English, like as their like 15th language. They all spoke so many languages. I know. So but embarrassing. This woman, she said to me, um, we stay here until the doctors say that we're okay to leave. And then they go to a step down level, which is an assisted living with, you know, so they have these services that we don't provide. I worked for a, a treatment facility in Malibu and we wrote the, the book Ending Addiction for Good. And uh, one of the things that we would get slammed on in the press was that we had over a 90% recovery rate at one year. So people at one year when we're still sober 
And, you know, I've been asked, well, how, how did you do that? I was like, it's not because it was magic. Like we did use this treatment protocol. That's good. And there's lots of places to use good treatment protocols. Yeah, I would imagine. But, yeah. what, but why did this work? And I was like, because this was before that treatment facility was sold and we didn't take insurance. So people could stay for 90 to 120 days and then they had a step down level of service, but they still had. So when people left and went back to wherever they came from, they didn't just have the name and number of a therapist and the name and number of, of you know, a 12 step support group. They had the name and number of a therapist and their first appointment was set up and with a nutritionist and with a massage therapist and with an acupuncturist and with a psychiatrist uh, and, yeah. with a, and with and with and with and with a all set up they went home probably with a sober companion someone who helped them to get from the treatment facility through the airport that's filled with bars through the airplane that's filled with how much do you want to drink to their house where they got their house cleaned out so they had a chance a chance. Even then, it's only a chance. Right. But if you have that much support. Oh, no. It's, I mean, yeah, like even, even, right. But, but I'm like, zero I'm like, chance without right, that. But I'm like, how do you, how do you expect someone to, to make it on their own when you're just doing, we call it spin dry, right? Where you put, just put them into rehab, <laughs> get them, get them detoxed, and then say goodbye, go back to the streets that you just came from. They don't have any chance. They don't have yeah, any that's... chance. So I was like, I was like, it's not a surprise to me that we had this great recovery rate. That's not a surprise. We just gave people the services yeah, that we yeah. knew they needed. End of story. Is it fixable? I mean, can we get to that place? Because it's a little scary with the amount of drugs coming in, the amount of people that are facing not just the drugs, but just mental health in general. And it seemingly an explosion or a crisis, um, by all accounts, a crisis. And it does seem like we don't have really good systems in a lot of ways. And we don't you, want it, to. Is it fixable? It's easy. I've just told you what the solution is. Yeah. I could line up a hundred other doctors, research scientists like me, uh, physicians, mental health, psychiatrists, mental health work. I could, they're all going to tell you the same thing. We don't have hmm. the Dang. will because what it would take a national health care system. It would take a national health care. Uh, uh, this one for this situation, I'd agree that the, it will take a one. national health care system because as long it, and it needs to be a nonprofit system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, there are, there are certain things that I don't know that we need to profit from. You know, do we need to profit from the roads? No. We, my road out here is not a toll road right outside of my house. I pay some taxes. They build a road. They maintain the road. They maintain the road out here actually quite well. It's a nice road. You know, when the one time a year it snows, when they get to us, because they like to snow, plow the interstate first, they come, they plow the road. Yeah, it you works. Know? Right? The post office. People are like, you know, there was a controversy. Well, the post office isn't making any money. I don't know that the post office needs to make money. Like, yeah, just you break know? even. Just don't suck too much money. You know, you yeah, don't have to make you a know, profit. You, you could, it's okay to lose a little. Or or, or break even, you know, because yeah. we pay a lot in taxes to make these things run. So, so I don't, again, this is my choice. I don't mind if my taxes go to help people get insulin so that they don't die from diabetes or get, you know, proper health care. I, but with a for-profit system, yeah. You have no impetus to get people in rural areas care because you can't turn a profit on that. Right? You can't there's no help for the people who live in poor neighborhoods, who live in inner cities. You know, like why why do they call Malibu <laughs> the rehab riviera? Cuz there's like 40 rehabs or 60 some ridiculous number of rehabs all in a 14 mile stretch of, you know, beach or whatever it is. I mean, I the numbers I, I could be off one or two, but right. you because who you want to go to rehab on the beach if you can afford it. If you can afford it, yeah, absolutely. Right? But if you can't, then where do you go? There are some wonderful nonprofit programs 
but they can only serve a handful of people. I'm thinking about like homeboy industries in downtown Los Angeles. They work, um, you know, with gang members really to get gang members off the street. Some of them have drug problems, some have mental health problems. They, they deal with all of that. They give them some training. They have a, ba a bakery that's actually very, very good. They do some other services as well. But it's like, how many people can they serve? Nothing near the need that's in the area, right? And so is it fixable? Yeah. If we had the will, and I don't see the political will to do that. I just don't see it. Yeah, it's, boy, they've taken that, they've tried twice in a way. Well, and not only ha have, have there been efforts, but then when those administrations get out of office, you see a degrading of the services. You know, I'm in Washington State. Thank goodness I can still access, you know, uh, health care, you know. But I remember when, you know, I, I was in, in Texas. Woo. I paid through the nose for uh... a very, very poor health care. You know, what other country that, you know, wealthy country, wealthy nation, can you go bankrupt for medical services? I don't yeah, know I, one. That's a, this is a weird thing. Definitely American unique. It's an American invention. So, so is there a solution? I want to say, I want to leave people with hope and say, yes, there is. Because <laughs> if you like, you know, like my book, Ending Addiction for Good, we took it out of print. So you can get it as a used book. I don't, I, I'm not telling you anything that's going to make me any money at all. Yeah. It lists a whole bunch of different activities. If you go to my website, there's a whole bunch of different activities that you can do, you can find on YouTube. Mm. But we can do so much better. So, so are there solutions? Yes. When I first got sober, there was nothing for trauma. There is good information for trauma. You can find out about it from the library, but you have to. So like somatic experiencing is not, not generally done by licensed psychotherapists and therefore it is not generally covered by insurance yeah. so i pay my insurance fee and then i also pay for my acupuncturist who is not covered and i also pay for my somaticist who is not covered okay so i spend the greatest proportion of my income goes to mental health services and that shouldn't be like that at the individual but, level no it shouldn't be but I do know what works because I should be dead. I never should have made it past 25. I never should have made it past 25. Uh, yeah, and I turned uh, 50 last year. Happy birthday. That is how I, what does that feel? I mean, like I said, it was kind of like you're writing these books disassociated or not. No, no, I don't like, write yeah. I don't write disassociated. Yeah. I, I mean, I like, yeah, I like I had this envision, like, how did you do that? And then you, like you said, like, yeah, that doesn't happen. You can't. What I did was I wrote through pain. Oh, so you really I, did sink I, into the chair. Yeah, well, you have to because so my debut novel is coming out probably in September. It's called The Path to God's Promise. And I saw that. I saw that. Okay. Yeah. So I'm super excited Talk about, about that because I love, I love fiction, right? I love nonfiction. That's great. But I love, and it's about climate change okay. and God speaks to a middle-aged Jewish lady who wants nothing to do with them. She's like, we don't do that. We're not prophets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and God says, no, listen, lady, uh, somebody's got it. They don't listen to the scientists. They, the peoples, right? They don't listen to the scientists. Maybe write a, write a book about it, write a novel, right? So that's what we do. And, and, and it looks at climate change and it, it looks at, um, you know, that we make choices. Okay. We make choices. And so, but in order to, this is my experience, and I don't know, maybe other authors will tell you something different, but my experience is I have to be able to feel what the character feels. Yeah. And I, in my nonfiction, I write about trauma. I write about addiction. I write about, you know, people who have become homeless or lost their dreams, lost their loved ones, lost all the things. In uh, one of the stories um, in Rock to Recovery, the, 
one of the first times this guy, uh, Brandon Parkhurst, does heroin, this guy that he idolizes, who's a few years older, Brandon's like 19, the guy next to him is like, hey, let me show you how to shoot dope. They shoot dope. And he wakes up. The guy's blue. He's gone. Dead. Been dead for uh, whoever, who knows how long. And that was like one of many, you know, then he's in his house. This, his roommate comes in, puts a rifle in his mouth and kills himself. All <laughs> this is all happening to one guy, right? What do you do when your life is like that? You go shoot more dope. Uh, you find that you get <laughs> if my room, of course, my roommate is, is, is a, a miniature schnauzer, but if, if my roommate put a, a, a so there's no hope of this happening. A big, a, a big cookie in his mouth and choked, right, and choked yeah, himself purposely right, you, choked right, himself but, out. You know, my 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 roommate puts a, a gun in their mouth and kills himself. You bet. My the first thought that comes to my mind is, ah, uh, I'm not going to feel this. I need a beer. Right. Oh, you know that's a wonderful. So I was, I had just turned 20 years sober. I just celebrated my 20th anniversary, and a dear friend of mine, publisher of my poetry book which was called Meeting God at Midnight, she died. I was in Los Angeles for a concert. And I was going to fly. She's Jewish, right? So everything happens very fast. We're going to fly out, go oh, yeah, to the, yeah. the funeral, and fly back. The, you know, like, I'm not even gone 24 hours, like 22 hours. Right before I got on the flight to leave, I was at a friend's house. And I opened my refrigerator. They don't have a drinking problem. So there's a couple of beers in there. And I thought I wanted a piece of cheese because I was hungry and then I was going to drive myself to the airport. And I opened the refrigerator and I said, oh, a beer would be nice with the cheese. I shut, I'm 20 years sober. I shut the door to the refrigerator. I sat on my friend's couch for like a minute. And then I started calling my friends who were also sober. And I was like, I just was interested in picking up a beer. Why? Because I don't want my friend to be dead. And it's easier. Now, did I pick up? No, I, I waited one minute. I called my friends. Immediately, I have support and I'm fine within five minutes, right? But <sighs> close. 20 years in, I'm like, oh, I don't want to feel this. Because it's in my mind still, yeah, yeah. it's easier to just blot that out than to go to my friend's funeral and feel, my, no, my friend's really gone. She had a very aggressive form of cancer. She was gone in a few months gone right so but what i've learned is that i get all the moments i don't just get the awful moments those come that's life there's good there's bad and there's a lot of not really anything right like i'm not really pre like if i'm washing the dishes am i really present no i'm usually thinking about you know some other task i have to do or a conversation i had that didn't go the way i want or whatever you know like everybody else not necessarily in the moment but when i'm in the moment and this is what i've learned by being in my body and i probably get this better than other people because it's so new for me the feeling of those warm slippers on cold feet <sighs> I got it. The taste of the blackberries that I pick from the bush out in front of my house at the end of August when they're just yeah, at their yeah. ripest. Washington State's just packed so, with so right, so beautiful. Or the smell. I live right on the ocean. The smell of the salt. Yeah coming because we get lots of wind up here in the yeah. sound like the smell of the of the ocean that salty smell you know the know. sound of one of my cats purring like when they're just you know when they cuddle up to you and it's yeah. that little purring yeah, so like just got the engine going i get to ex that mo and so that's what you know i understand when when the buddhists or 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 the hindu talk about being you know in the moment the, the yeah. whole mindfulness movement most of the time i'm not in the moment like i'm uh, you know doing my thing but when i am the way we sense things is in our bodies yeah and you have you have that super hyper already hyper alert experiences and 
Sure, but those aren't really real. That yeah, but hyper trans alertness. Transferring that into your real now yourself. You've got that. Right. So that hyper that hypervigilance is a way of keeping back. Yeah, yeah. Now being in my body. And and it's wonderful because my, you know, uh, my practitioner who does the somatics with me, she stops me all the time. She's like, well, what does that feel like? And I, she's wonderful because she's like, what are you feeling? It's like, I don't know, something, you know, like anger. I can usually identify fear sometimes. And then pretty much anything else. I'm like, I don't know. Some, I, I, there's some sort of emotion happening, like overwhelming joy, I suppose I could, you know, but like, I'm like, I don't know. And so she helps me to identify and she helps me. She's like, all right, let, let's stop for a minute. Where do you feel that in your body? Ooh. Right? Are you feeling anything in your body? You know? And then she'll do exercises with me to help me if I'm really out of it, which I haven't been now for a couple of years. But when that happens, it's like, okay, put your feet on the ground, do some breathing exercises, do do mm. this or that. You know, one of the things that I found that people, a lot, I work a lot with combat veterans with PTSD. And one of the things that we find a lot of is they um, can't do breathing exercises very well. Why? Because it asks you very often to close your eyes. That's not happening for a whole bunch of us. But even with your eyes open, to try to feel the breath go all the way down into the diaphragm and then come back up and, you know, feel the oxygen like dissipate in through your body. Oh, hell no. No, I triggered all to blazes. Like, no, no, no. So then how do we, I mean, I used to not breathe. I used to like, like just write a little, just a little bit to keep me going. And that was it. And, and to really learn how to breathe and not be triggered breathe. by yeah. that, you know? So this is all that, what somatics have, have taught me, what radical lives and specifically has taught me is how to be present and how to breathe and how to be here. But then the payoff isn't just that, oh my God, sometimes your friend dies and that's a bummer right? On a magnitude that you, you know, didn't know was possible. But also, I am very attentive to all those little things, even things that are uncomfortable, like, you know, I'm 50, I get hot a lot. Not really hot flashes, but just, just hot enough hot. to be uncomfortable. Yeah, like burning something inside burning. Yeah, where it's like, it's like, do I have a fever? And then you take, you know, and it's like normal. No. You're like, oh, you know, but not, not like, oh my gosh, I have to take all my clothes off. You know, not a, not a true hot flash. Well, it's uncomfortable. I don't like it, but I get to feel it. And then when I turn the air conditioner on and it blows right on me, right? And I'll have shorts on. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. So I get all, all of it. I don't like to read. Um, I don't, I don't like to read on a Kindle. I want a book. I'm a book I person. like the feel yeah. of that paper, but I also love an audio book because someone who has a really good voice and can tell a story. Yeah, I yes, get it. Please. Yeah. So yeah, when yeah. I'm driving, I live in the country. So when I'm driving all around to all my, you know, appointments and I get to, I get to be there then with that enjoyment of the sound, the taste, the smell, yeah, the whatever, yeah. you know, my friends, I love strawberry cake. My friends for my 50th birthday, they baked a strawberry cake, the smell of the strawberry cake in the oven. Amazing. It's magic. It's magic. I get that now because I learned how to use my body and that's what the human experience is, right? I must, you know, we're made of stardust. There's a whole bunch of evidence from I, I, part of the Society for Consciousness Studies. There's a whole bunch of evidence that this is just all some sort of matrix illusion, right? Our bodies are not actually dense like this. They're mostly uh, open space. We experience it as dense as matter, but really it's a bunch of electrons. Some of my electrons are flying into the chair that's beneath me and some of the electrons from the chair are coming into my backside. Like uh, it's it's not what it looks. It's a matrix. It's not what it looks like, right? We are but I, but little I'm energies. You but little this, energies. Right. But this, I get to, how do I experience my consciousness? I experience it through this body. Hmm. Uh, that's true. You do, your and body so is the... that's And that's what having huh. greater mental health, 
has allowed is for me to have a fuller experience of my humanity. Doesn't mean I don't have fights with people. Doesn't mean that I don't screw things up. Doesn't mean that everything goes my way. Doesn't mean that I didn't burn the chicken. Like, nope. Oh, I get, so but true. I get to be here and feel it. And that's the payoff. That is the payoff that I'm not trapped in the past with something that I can't do anything about. Hmm. And I get to teach other people that there are solutions. You're just not going to yeah. get it by going to the doctor. It's a powerful story, Constance. Um, wow. I mean, and I got to say, thank you for sharing. That is, uh, it's a lot to, I, I think you said at the beginning, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Um, but I think your story is unique in a lot of ways, but not, I mean, the trauma part is not so unique. And but the manifestation and how people find recovery and how they find themselves, um, I think everybody's journey is obviously going to be pretty unique. But I love the fact that you've you've leaned into it to try to help other people. Yeah, and well, listen, I, I, I don't. It's not right if I'm the only one who gets it just because yeah. I got lucky to to you know, I got lucky to work at a treatment that the treatment facility that funded me to go do this research. Yeah. You know, I, I, we, you know, one of the things that, uh, that Richard and I did at that facility is we made the decision this, this was not going to be proprietary. Hmm. You weren't only going to get this information if you came to that treatment facility. Right. We wrote it in a book, popular press, you know, nonfiction book. I went and spoke all around the world for five years. We took that book everywhere. You know, wow. I was at the, I was at the veterans, uh, the VFW, the veteran of, of foreign wars, um, right after Obama, like Obama was on the stage. And then, a, you know, a little bit later up comes doc. Right. And everybody who went there had access to the book. We want people to know. I love it how to recover and now because I'm getting more into trauma and more into you know uh, community development and climate change these same principles apply yeah and if we listen to and learn from marginalized communities mm -hmm. they have so much wisdom yeah. that has been pushed away and said no 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 you, you, your skin's the wrong color. You don't have enough money. You're, you know, no science. Yeah. Your genitals are the wrong. Yeah. You didn't do it through the scientific, by the way, we do things through the scientific method all the time. Look at how many climate scientists are telling you there is a pro hello, California flooding right now after decades of drought. Like, please, please let me, let me know that this is, but we do things scientifically. And then the public says, oh. yeah, well, it's inconvenient. Um, Super inconvenient. Well, that's how what, did, that's what how do people, uh, Al Gore said. I, I, it's an inconvenient, yeah, the inconvenient truth. Um, how do people find you and find your over, work? I'm all over the internet. So my my website is constantsharf.com. I'm on all the socials, uh, TikTok, uh, Instagram, name, yeah. Facebook, LinkedIn. It's all at Dr. Sharf, D-R Sharf. So you can you can look me up um, anywhere. I, I love uh, to I love to collaborate with people. I'm working on I'm working on another book about about trauma and um, getting ready for the debut novel. Right. I have that's exciting. Constance, thanks so much for for sharing your story. It, it, powerful. Um, what a I mean, you've came out alive, like you said. You shouldn't be fifty. No, no, I should have died by twenty-five. Yeah, um, you know, my friends were taking gentlemen's bets, and um, one, one thought I might make it to twenty-eight. She said, "Please come to Australia before you die." And she was the winner because she had the long, the longest number, right? Everybody like, she, yeah. She, she was the one. She was the one who, <laughs> um, who believed in me the most. She was like, "No, I think she might pull it out a little longer than you guys think." You the know, less, and she, you she in the less, in the least less. <laughs> right, right. And you certainly, someone like me, you certainly does not come on to be, go on to be, you know, a uh, best-selling author, an award-winning author, an no. international, you know, uh, no. uh, 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 researcher in mental health. Like, that's not what happened. People like me become suicides. People like me become overdoses. Yeah, yeah. Or that's work in a clinic and you're, and you're in and out of your own clinic, you know, just some a, a bad story usually. 
Yeah. F- fantastic journey. And I w- and I'm going to get online and read and I want to catch up a little bit more just to find you know, when I sure. read your story as well. I mean, physically we get on there and hold the book and look at it. Um, awesome journey. I've, I started my trip in Washington in, um, and so I, my, my other, my other, uh, podcast. Mm. So, um, I finished in Portland. Oh, okay. Uh, in about six months in about six months. I'm back up in the Northwest. But great, great to meet you, and thanks so much for the story. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so everybody, you can find you can find uh, Doctor Sharf, uh, yes. and s- all all across social media and her books and your novels. My books are all out. on Amazon, and also links on my website. Yeah, and then your novels coming out probably September. The Path to God's Promise. Oh, I, I love the I love that title. Um, love it, and I imagine the inside is interesting. An interesting. We um, hope so. An interesting take. Okay. Thanks everybody for, for joining the show and please do, you know, make some comments when you can and share um, and just kind of support what we're doing here. Trying to bring mental health is kind of a, you know, regular conversation and get people like Constance to share a real journey, uh, a real life story of recovery and more than just recovery, you know, turning it into helping other people. That's what we hope to do. Thanks everybody.